thanks for listening to Season 2 of the Matt Lubu Podcast. For this season, I'll be posting supplementary materials on my website, mattlupu.com. There, you can find maps, photos, and more to go along with each episode. Check out the entry for this episode. It's up right now. Once again, you can find it all at mattlupu.com. And now, on to the show. Last time, I tried to set the stage for the earliest Norse expeditions out of Scandinavia into the wider world. If you'll recall, the more famous and familiar context that the Northmen had with the rest of Europe, at least in the English-speaking world, occurred in the 9th century on the coasts of England and northwestern France. Those contacts, especially the raid of the Lindisfarne Monastery, are usually where historians locate the beginning of the so-called Viking Age. But this series is concerned with the origins of the Ukrainian and the Russian people, and for that, we must concern ourselves with the eastern activities of the Vikings. Just as in the West, the Vikings encountered a landscape full of linguistically and culturally different peoples. One such people, most central to our story, are a group that lived along the great rivers of Eastern Europe. They are the Slavs. While they are not the only indigenous people that the Vikings will encounter on their arduous treks into the primeval forests, they are central figures in the rise of the Rus, and they are particularly well documented in the ancient sources. The oldest source to mention them was written in the 2nd century AD. Tacitus, the famous Roman historian, describes them at the very end of his ethnographic treatise on the Germans. He refers to a people called the Venethi, who lived along the Baltic Sea and the mouth of the Vistula River in what is now Poland. I've taken the liberty of translating Tacitus's account of the Venethi from the original Latin. He says, The Venethi have taken much from the customs of the Sarmatians, for they wander wheresoever their piracy encourages them to, in the mountains and forests between the Pucini and the Feni. These people nevertheless resemble the Germans more, because they fix their houses and bear shields, and they rejoice in discipline and fleetness of foot, which are all different from the Sarmatians living on horseback and in wagons. The Feni were most likely the ancestors of the modern Finns, while the Pucini, also known as the Bastarni, were probably a Germanic people, although we don't really know for certain. The Sarmatians are a tribe that both the Greeks and Romans were much more familiar with. They lived along the northern banks of the Danube in antiquity, and their range extended far to the east of the Black Sea. They will be important to our story later. Now you might be wondering how we get the Slavs from the Venethi. I'm glad you asked. The next concrete link we have is in the work of Jordanes, writing in Constantinople in the 6th century AD. Here's what he says about the relationship between the Slavs and the Venethi. Inward from these rivers is Dacia, defended by the rough Alps just like a crown. Next door on the left side, which is situated to the north, 
The populous nation of the Venethi settled throughout an immense space from the mouth of the Vistula River, whose names, although now they are changed through various families and places, nevertheless they are principally called the Sclaveni and the Antes. The Sclaveni live from the city of Noviodunum and the lake which is called Mercianus, all the way up to the Danastrum River, and as far as the Viscla River in the north. These people have lakes and forests instead of cities. A couple of things are interesting about this passage. Firstly, Giordanes briefly explains that the Sclaveni and the Antes are in fact one and the same with the Venethi. It seems as if the Venethi are an older name for the current tribes. The identification of the Sclaveni as the Slavs seems straightforward enough, if only because of the similarity of their names in both the Latin and the Greek. Secondly, Giordanes refers to several geographical markers in his description of their homeland. If you're not intimately familiar with ancient geography, Dacia is roughly where modern-day Romania is. The city of Noviodunum has been identified as the modern Romanian city of Isatia, and the Vizcla River is the Vistula in Poland. Giordanes does seem to use two different names in reference to the same river, Vistula and Vizcla. Some scholars have explained this discrepancy by arguing that the name Viscla was taken from a Gothic oral source, or perhaps it was just a medieval misspelling. Either way, the town of Isatia is located on the Danube River, just over the border from Ukraine, on the Romanian side. If you'll remember, I mentioned a moment ago that the Danube River was the ancient homeland of the Sarmatian people. So how can it be both the home of the Slavs and the Sarmatians? The answer to that question is a little bit complicated. We know about them from the works of Herodotus. If you've never encountered him before, Herodotus is the father of Western history. He's the oldest Greek historian we have, and the author who invented the word history, which comes from the Greek historiae, meaning investigations. Much of what we know about the Sarmatian people's habits, customs, and homeland comes from him. So, if we take the Sarmatians as a sort of case study, we can start to understand the difficulty of identifying these ethnic designations just because of how fluid they must have been. Herodotus tells us that the Sarmatians are one of several Scythian peoples. The Greeks and Romans tended to view any nomadic culture living to the north and east of the Mediterranean as Scythians. They divided the Scythian peoples into ever more granular groups based on language or culture. Here are a few of the major subdivisions of Scythians, according to Herodotus. He tells us about the Sarmatians, the Masagetai, the Sigaini, the Chimerians, the Agathirsi, and, arguably, the Slavs. At any rate, none of these names mean nearly as much as the descriptions of their customs and habits, since that seems to be the major factors the ancients used when designating who is who in their ethnographies. Well, great. So what are some of the habits and customs of the Slavs? For that question, we have to turn to yet another source, this one contemporary with Giordani's. I'm referring to the famous Byzantine historian Procopius. 
His account is the longest and most detailed. For that reason, I've only slightly adapted a published translation of his work. Here's what he tells us. For these nations, the Sclaveni and the Anti are not ruled by one man, but they have lived from old under a democracy, and consequently everything which involves their welfare, whether for good or for ill, is referred to the people. It is also true that in all other matters, practically speaking, these two barbarian peoples had had from ancient times the same institutions and customs. For they believe that one God, the maker of lightning, is alone Lord of all things, and they sacrifice to him cattle and all other victims. But as for fate, they neither know it, nor do they in any way admit that it has any power among them. But whenever death stands close before them, either stricken with sickness or beginning a war, they make a promise that, if they escape, they will straightway make a sacrifice to the god in return for their life. And if they escape, they sacrifice just what they have promised, and consider that their safety has been bought with the same sacrifice. They reverence, however, both rivers and nymphs, and some other spirits, and they sacrifice to all these also, and they make their divinations in connection with these sacrifices. They live in pitiful hovels, which they set up far apart from one another, but as a general thing, every man is constantly changing his place of abode. When they enter battle, the majority of them go against their enemy on foot, carrying little shields and javelins in their hands, but they never wear armor. Indeed, some of them do not wear even a shirt or a cloak, but gathering their pants up as far as their crotch, they enter into battle with their opponents. And both the two people have the same language, an utterly barbarous tongue. Furthermore, they do not differ at all from one another in appearance, for they are all exceptionally tall and stalwart men while their bodies and hair are neither very fair or blonde, nor indeed do they incline entirely to the dark type, but they are all slightly ruddy in color, and they live a hard life, giving no heed to bodily comforts, just as the Masagitai do. And, like them, they are continually and at all times covered with filth. However, they are in no respect base nor evildoers, but they preserve the Hunnic character in all its simplicity. In fact, the Sclaveni and the Anti actually had a single name in the remote past, for they were both called Spori in olden times, because, I suppose, living apart one man from another, they inhabit their country in a sporadic fashion, and in consequence of this very fact, they hold a great amount of land, for they alone inhabit the greatest part of the northern bank of the river. So much, then, may be said regarding these peoples. Notice again here that Procopius compares the Slavs to the Masagitai, one of the Scythian groups that we know about from Herodotus. Also, keep in mind that Herodotus is writing about a thousand years before Procopius. Let that sink in for a minute. Procopius is certainly using the term Masagitai in an archaizing sense, putting himself in dialogue with his much more ancient compatriot, since the Masagitai by this point in history were absorbed by the Huns, or perhaps the Turkic Khazar peoples contemporary with Procopius. So those are the Slavs. But the Slavs are not the Rus. Or are they? Where did that name even come from? 
The earliest written record referring to a people called the Rus can be found in the Annales Bertiniani. This historical document was probably written by scribes in the court of Louis the Pious, son of Charlemagne. It records events from the years 830 to 882 AD. Apparently, in the year 839, a delegation of ambassadors sent by the Byzantine emperor Theophilus came to the court of Louis the Pious. They brought with them, quote, Some men who said they were called Ros, and had been sent to him by their king, whose name was the Chacanus. Theophilus requested in his letter that the emperor, in his goodness, might grant them safe conducts to travel through his empire, and any help or practical assistance they needed to return home, for the route by which they had reached Constantinople had taken them through primitive tribes that were very fierce and savage, and Theophilus did not wish them to return that way in case some disaster befell them. When the emperor investigated more closely the reasons for their coming here, he discovered that they belonged to the people of the Swedes. So perhaps, then, the Rus are Swedish in origin. But how could that be if their leader was called the Chacanus, which often gets translated as the Khan in English? That name suggests a Turkic, or perhaps Khazar, connection to the Rus. If that's true, then where do the Slavs fit into this? The answers to these questions aren't straightforward, but this series would not be complete if I didn't mention a long-standing controversy that surrounds the topic. It's called the Normanist Controversy. You see, scholars that have tackled this subject from different parts of the world have emphasized different parts of early Russian and Ukrainian history. Those Russian scholars of the Soviet era through to this very day, tend to see the history of the Rus as primarily a history of the Slavs. But scholars from Western Europe and Scandinavia see the history of the Rus as a history largely shaped by Viking conquest. Next time, we'll delve into the evidence from Arab, Persian, Norse, and Slavic sources to help clarify the ancient origins of the Rus. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, be sure to like and subscribe. And as always, thanks for listening.